was part of WC's Arabesque Number One. This is Tom Newhouse inviting you to listen to my second podcast ever. And now we embark on Chapter Two of today's podcast. Project Open Fairness began in 2006. I started by visiting 15 villages in three countries, Ghana, Cote d'Ivoire, and Cameroon. And I would often bring people with me, I would, and then we would stop in the big cities and pick up tools, mostly boots, machetes, sharpening stones, weighing scales, moisture meters, pencils, and notebooks. Um, since then, and, and we did that every year, we, since then we have dug four wells costing $2,500 each, bringing water to four different villages. We built a sewing room in Brogue in Ivory Coast for the chief's wife so she could teach young women how to sew so they wouldn't be buying Chinese clothing. Um, but then in 2012, I asked the chiefs of two villages, Depa and Pezouan, um, if, they, if, if I were to do something more substantial than bring tools, what would they want? And they both responded, we want a truck. And of course, that's costing $40,000. So I said, well, I can't really do that. That's biting off more than I can chew. Um, so they said, I said, what else that's less expensive? And they said, rice hulling machine. Um, so I, that's what I did. I put in two rice hullers, one in Depa and one in Peswan and two different buildings. Uh, the first one was paid for by a woman who attended one of my talks. She gave me $10,000 and that got me halfway uh, to installing the rice hauler, and I was able to raise the rest of the money. By summer 2013, the first building was built, and when I visited in August, they were milling rice, and they've been milling rice in that village ever since. They're completely self-sustainable. Um, at that same time, in 2013, we also made our first batch of chocolate by roasting beans directly over a wood fire and having children pulling the shells off. And then we ground them up and put them in a little machine that I brought in my suitcase. And we made our first village chocolate. Anyway, that's a little uh, little vignette. Um, and now I'm just going to say, uh, would you please donate to Project Open Fairness? Because we're, you know, it's very hard to get money these days. Uh, I'm sure you can imagine why. And uh, please visit www.projecthopeandfairness.org, all one word, and clicking on Donate at the bottom of the page. Or if you don't like technology, send a check to, if the U.S. Postal Service is still existing, uh, send a check to Donations, PHNF, uh, Donations Project Hope and Fairness, 1298 Warren Road, Cambria, California, 93420. Please make the check out to Project Hope and Fairness. Four words. Thank you so much. Okay, and now we go on to our next section, our next chapter. This is chapter three. It's about yeast. There are 1,500 species of yeast, which is a kind of a fungus. Um, and the yeast that we use um, in cooking and baking is a particular species called Saccharomyces cerevisiae, 
which means sugar-eating fungus of beer. Literally, that's what it means in Latin. Um, it probably, our relationship to it probably started in Babylonia at least 4,000 years ago, but it probably predates that. Uh, but it's just that Babylonia was the first documented evidence of humans using Saccharomyces cerevisiae. So there are 1,500 species. Saccharomyces cerevisiae is one of them. And then uh, under the category of Saccharomyces cerevisiae, the species, there are 9,000 strains, and each one's quite different from the other. So uh, gen in general, the, ones, the strains that we use are good gas producers and good alcohol producers. The uh, fungus, uh, the yeast, really, um, it produces alcohol when it's anaerobic, that is, without oxygen, and it produces carbon dioxide when it's aerobic, that is, with oxygen. So if you just leave it go, it will produce alcohol and cover it. It'll produce alcohol. If you froth it up with a whisk, say it's a batter, you will get carbon dioxide. So that's the way the yeast is. Um, its natural ecological niche is ripe grapes. So, of course, we've been drinking wine for as long as we've been eating bread. Uh, and humans have made the first leavening by probably by crushing ripe grapes and, um, and put it, adding something sweet to it, like honey. Uh, before the 20th century, yeast, breads were leavened with wild yeasts that were trapped in what we call sourdoughs. Uh, they were usually a sourdough batter, and uh, each sourdough had its own personality because essentially you were just um, maybe crushing some uh, grapes or maybe just uh, letting some flour go, and you were capturing whatever was in on the grapes or in the air or in the grain, and that's the community of yeast that you got. And pretty much they were all Saccharomyces cerevisiae, but they were different strains, so... Uh, they all had different capabilities. So every sourdough has its own flavor-making potential, and they're quite different from each other. Just like you have a, a whole village of people, and, and they're all the same species, um, and yet every one has a different name, and they all behave differently. So that's the way yeast are, too. Um, so um, now the... Uh, there are three commercial types of yeast. So here's the most, the, the thing you want to hear about the most um, is the different types, the commercial types. Um, one is fresh yeast. So you see that less and less because supermarkets don't want to carry it and people uh, find it a little difficult to work with because it gets, goes bad so easily. Um, but it's in a cake. It's basically uh, vegetative yeast cells uh, that are ready to start growing and producing carbon dioxide and alcohol. Um, and uh, um, they're just ready to go. You can just mix them into something and off you go. You don't have to even activate them. The whole idea of activation was for a new kind of granulated yeast that was invented after the Second World War called active dry. And that kind of yeast... Uh, it was very easy to work with because you could leave it on a shelf, a shelf for 50 years and it'd still be good when you open the can, it'd still be good. And if you open the can and you left it, even a year later, it'd still be pretty good. 
Um, so these were not vegetative cells. These are spores. So that kind of yeast, the active dry yeast invented in the 1940s, you have to put it in lukewarm water and you let it uh, um, start growing. And you can add a little sugar, otherwise it starts to eat itself, which isn't a pretty picture. Um, so you add a little sugar, or you, I like to whisk in just a little flour. Why add sugar when you just add flour, which the yeast will do a fine job of fermenting? Because flour contains maltose, which is a very fermentable sugar uh, for, for yeast. Um, so that's active dry. And, uh, and then there's the third category is instant or instant rise. And the French came up with that one. And that, those are vegetative cells that are, don't have to be refrigerated. They have a little longer shelf life than the fresh, but they, they're, they last a long time indefinitely unopened. But as soon as you open the package, you have to refrigerate it. So instant rise, it says on the bottle or the envelope or whatever, uh, refrigerate after opening. So because otherwise the yeast, their vegetative cells, they get old really fast. And after maybe three weeks at room temperature, that maybe less than a half are still viable. Okay, so three kinds of yeast. Fresh, which you can just crumble and put in the product and go. Active dry, which you have to start in lukewarm water. If you start it in hotter than lukewarm, you kill it. If you start it in colder than lukewarm, you kill it. So it, lukewarm, which means you put the water on your wrist. And just like with a baby bottle, it should not feel hot uh, or uh, just pleasant. That's all. And then, of course, the instant rice, you don't have to, it, just like fresh, you just drop it in the mixer with all the other ingredients and mix. Those are the three kinds of yeast. The advantages and disadvantages, the fresh, you can, uh, it has a, it's wonderful to have it in your fridge and I like to crumble it and smell it. But really, there's no advantages to using fresh, be, uh, I don't think. It's a bit of a mess. Uh, it's inconvenient. Active dry, the advantage is you can open it and leave it uh, at, at room temperature and nothing will happen because they're spores and spores are able to withstand the most difficult of conditions. And then instant rise, which are vegetative cells, but uh, half, once you open the package, you have to refrigerate them. And even in the refrigerator with the instant rise, um, after a while, they, after like months, months, then they lose their, their oomph. Anyway, those are the three kinds of yeast. I hope that helps you. And now on to chapter four. This is the chapter about food history. And today's little vignette is about baguettes. But first, a little word about food, what food history of food, which has only recently become an important academic to topic. It was completely ignored until about 20 years ago or 30 years ago. Um, but almost no universities taught it. It was just unimportant. But now it's become quite a la mode. Um, I believe that food history is a little like, well, all history is a little like religion. There are many stories. Most of them are good, but none are provable because food history rarely presents opportunities to ferret out the truth. 
So we are left with stories. And actually, I should say it's just food history, not all history. I mean, military history, who died and where they died, that's documented. But nobody cared about what people were eating. So that you have to you know, do very clever things to ferret out something about the history of about food history. Um, in fact, uh, once when I was a professor at California, at Cal Poly uh, in San Luis Obispo, um, I went on a self-improvement trip with the American Institute of Wine and Foods. There are a bunch of us uh, professors from various departments. And I was sitting next to a well-known food historian. And I start telling him some of the stories that I used, that I would tell my students. And to each one of the stories, he said, wrong. And so that made an impression on me. So I've become a little more um, humble about history. I, I noticed that uh, food history... Uh, the stories, there's lots of good stories, and nobody really knows which stories are true. But today I'm going to tell you a story about the baguette, which is in the United States, we call the baguette French bread. But the baguette is not French at all, just like French fries are not French. Um, they are Belgian, and Danish are not Danish. They are Austrian. But baguette, um, it means stick. It was introduced by an Austrian officer in Paris. Uh, one story has it that there was a big, uh, uh, I forget what they call those things, where a whole lot of people people came together and were selling their goods um, and uh, international. Um, and the, the Austrians were trying to sell their ovens. But the other story is it was an Austrian military officer. Which one? I don't know. Is true? I don't know. But anyway, uh, he was trying to sell this steam-injected oven. The French didn't have such ovens. Um, this was, of course, in the 19th century. It's, pre, it's about the time of the Industrial Revolution, and everything in society was changing, including bread making. And um, they, an oven that was made out of cold-rolled steel that actually in, injected steam and didn't take up a lot of space uh, was very beneficial. And the baguette was designed to fit in the Austrian steam-injected oven because it only had like a five-inch height on the oven. So you could have many ovens and you could bake a whole lot of bread in a very short space. You didn't have these giant stone ovens that often burned down whole communities. They were unsafe and they used huge amounts of wood, burnt, cutting down forests in order to run them, whereas a steam-injected oven used uh, coal at first and then eventually gas. Uh, oil and then gas and now electricity. Um, anyway, that's the the steam injected oven, which we think of as French, but it's actually Viennese. And uh, but the baguette, the, the Austrian baguette, uh, and the French call it the the uh, Viennese bread, um, and it looks like a baguette. It it, it actually looks more like a a long pretzel, um, but that's called the pain viennois. Um, the, Aust the, the French version of this bread is quite different because the French love crust. Nobody else on the planet loves crust as much as the French do. And actually, there's a phrase that I learned when I worked in French restaurants, quand c'est noir, c'est cuit, when it's black, it's cooked, which, of course, is saying to hell with the customer, put the stuff out. Uh, but, of course, then people started to expect blackened things because that's the way the ovens baked at that time. 
Um, especially if you got a, a real flashy oven, you built the fire too high, or, and then you put the dough in too soon or whatever. But when I had my bakery in Austin, Texas, my partner and I, Patricia and I, we would uh, we had we came up with the phrase whenever we brought the bread out of the oven, we would yell out, "Quan ses noyer ses quit." <laughs> anyway, we it was a fun little bilingual pun. Now we come to chapter five, which is our troubleshooting and tips chapter. And today's subject of chapter five is why does cooked meat ooze juices? And alternatively, how do you keep the juices inside and does searing work? Okay, so first of all, in order to answer this question, why does cooked meat ooze juices and how do you keep it from oozing? Uh, you need to consider the structure of meat. Meat, whether it's red or white, um, is made up of fibers. Fibers are the, you can't see them, they're you have, only under a microscope, but those are the cells of the muscle. And they run very long, they can be four or five inches long, um, and they're overlapped. Uh, and um, inside a fiber, you have myofibrils, myo meaning muscle, uh, myofibrils, and inside of the myofibrils, you have myofilaments. So the fibers, um, so that, that's the cell, and it has fibrils and filaments. And then uh, the cells are bundled up. So you have muscle fiber bundles, and then you have bundles inside of muscles. So basically starting from the outside, the muscle, uh, if you cut it across, you'll see the bundles. And then if you use a microscope, you will see the fibers. They're pretty big, so you don't need a really powerful mi microscope. Um, and, and maybe even binoculars, you could see the fibers. Um, and, uh, and then, uh, so muscle, bundles, fibers, then myofibrils or fibrils, and then myofilaments or filaments. That's the structure. So you see it's very fibrous. And the fibers are in cells that are surrounded by what are known as the lipid bilayer. So um, whether vegetable or animal on planet Earth, all cells are covered in a lipid bilayer. Every life, all life has a lipid bilayer, which is two uh, layers of fats that are oriented with the fatty portions on the inside and with the water-loving portions of each of the fat molecules facing the outside. So that's the way the lipid bilayer is. So every kind of life, whether it's at the most primitive cell, a, micro a microbial cell, all the way up to the most advanced life like elephants or humans. Um, so that's what is holding the cells together and that it's not leaky. There's no, water will not come out unless you do something such as salt it. So that will draw water out through the lipid bilayer. Um, or if you heat meat and do denature the protein, which means to change the structure of the protein, um, then you will cause fissures to form in the lipid bilayer and the cytoplasm, which is the water inside the cell, which has all the organelles, the Golgi apparatus, and a fantastic variety of, um, of stuff 
on the inside of the cell. That um, all the but the, all the water comes out, and all the organelles stay inside unless the fissures are really big. So generally, heat causes water uh, fissures to form in the lipid bilayer, and water oozes out. And when you cook a red meat, for example, and you see red juices, that is not blood. That is myoglobin. Myoglobin is a pigment that's associated with oxygen transmission to the mitochondria um, that's associated with the aerobic metabolism of cells. Um, so that's not blood. There's maybe a little bit of hemoglobin from the blood, but 95% of the red in the juices is not blood at all. So a lot of cooks think it's blood. It's not blood. Okay. And um, now the, the juice, When how do you keep the juice from oozing out? Because it's sort of bad to make a steak and then have it turn into a pool of water. Well, generally, uh, you have three alternatives. One is to cook it and serve it as fast as possible and maybe blot off extra water as it forms. So that's one way. So just be more efficient. So the French, what they I was taught to do is cook in two steps. So you, you par cook it and then you grill it at the last minute and serve it. And then it goes out to the customer. And then when the customer cuts into it, then the juices start to ooze. But uh, there's sauce and vegetables and other things to sort of hide it. The other solution is to make a sauce. Uh, I call that obfuscation. I love the word obfuscate. Um, so that's a way of hiding the loss of the juices. Um, so that's one role of sauces is to obfuscate juice loss in meat. Um, and the third choice you have is to buffer the pH. Now, this is a better living through chemistry solution, which is used a lot by the food industry. And uh, it's not really something you would do with steak, but it is something you do, say, with um, other foods that tend to lose their water. And, for example, shrimp is a good example. Frozen shrimp. If you look at the bag, look under the ingredients, you'll say shrimp, salt, and then phosphate salts. Some sort of a phosphate salt. Something, something phosphate. Okay, the phosphate salts are buffers which raise the pH so that the muscle cells, the fibers, hold on to the juices better so they don't come leaking out through the tears in the lipid bilayer. So that's another way. Or in Chinese cooking, in Chinese restaurants, they'll soak meat in baking soda and water and to, to hold on to, the, to make the, the cut of meat more juicy uh, when they're stir frying. So it doesn't ooze all that liquid and spoil the, the stir fry um, and also makes it easier to bite. So that's, those are the three ways to reduce juice loss. Sealing in the juices, finally, is a myth. It does not work. It's been resoundingly dismissed. It is not good science. This idea was started in 1850 by a German chemist, Justus von Liebig, who developed bouillon cubes and other meat pastes as uh, something for the food industry. And because he was so respected as an organic chemist, every word that emanated from his mouth became dogma. That's always the danger when you've got smart people. They think they know everything, and everybody thinks they know everything, and then people find out they don't know uh, jack-you-know-what about a lot of things. 
Um, anyway, he felt that just in battle, if you get cut, if you get wounded, you use your hot sword to cauterize the wound. And he felt that that's what you could do to meat. But it's not how meat is built. Meat is not like that. Um, it's fibrous and the juices ooze out and you're not going to cauterize. Uh, it, it doesn't work. So like sauteing, which was invented to basically cauterize, um, what sauteing really does is it adds a nice brownness, a nice flavor. Um, but actually for the most juicy meats, you cook them very slowly because uh, radical uh, denaturation of protein causes uh, loss of moisture. Anyway, uh, you can read all about that in, uh, in, in books. Uh, and uh, there's, um, it, it's, it's not, it's all, that's a myth. The seal in the juice theory is a, is a myth. All right, well, that's the end of the second uh, podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope it's useful to you. And uh, you can write to me, you know, twnewhouse at, at, uh, um, at gmail.com, T-W-N-E-U-H-A-U-S at gmail.com. I'm, I'm always game for questions and would even entertain the idea of putting questions on this little uh, culinary half hour. All right, well, nice talking to you, and we'll talk to you in the third podcast. <laughs>